Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Laura Kerr, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Mental Health and Trauma. I'm excited to have a speaker with me today who is able to talk to us about a lesser known but emerging area of speech pathology that has generated a lot of interest. I'd like to welcome Sarah Verdon, whose presentation I was privileged to watch at the Speech Pathology Australia conference a few months ago. Sarah is an Associate Professor of Speech Pathology at Charles Sturt University. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Laura. So tell us about your current role and how you came into it. So currently I am working at Charles Sturt and I've been with Charles Sturt my entire career. Um, But recently I've been... um, really focusing on my research in a few different areas and most recently looking at um, adverse childhood experiences and how they relate to um, language development. Wonderful. So tell us, what are adverse childhood experiences or ACEs as we might hear them being referred to? Yeah, so ACEs is what they're commonly referred to in the literature and sort of more colloquially as well. And basically... um, In the original studies that looked at adverse childhood experiences, there were three forms. So there was abuse, it could be physical, emotional or sexual abuse, neglect, which could be physical or emotional, and also household dysfunction. So that looked at things like having a parent with a mental illness or if a parent was incarcerated, whether there was domestic violence in the house, substance abuse um, or divorce. But also in my research, I've been, and a number of other studies as well, have been sort of thinking a little bit more broadly about the kinds of um, trauma and adverse experiences that children might face in early childhood. And so if we call to mind some recent events in Australia, um, thinking about natural disasters, so going through fires and floods and even prolonged disasters such as drought can really have an adverse experience on children because of how that plays into, um, well, first of all, seeing those disasters, but also the impact on their family. Um, And we've been doing a lot of research since the um, Black Summer bushfires about how this impacts children's wellbeing. Um, Also experiencing things like bullying and racism can be um, considered ACEs, living in a foster home, living in an unsafe neighbourhood, witnessing violence or living in poverty. Mm, Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's lots of us listening who can um, think of clients who may be, um, who may have experienced some of those, those things. Um, And they're probably, you know, clients, um, 
who have experienced those things that we're not aware of as well. So I think it's it's really important for us to be talking about this today so that um, speech pathologists can hold this in mind. So, Sarah, how are ACEs identified? Is there like a screening tool or or something that's used? Yeah, there is a screening tool and um, most commonly the screening tool that is used is from that original study that really just had those 10 ACEs um, that I explained at the beginning. They don't consider the sort of subsequent ACEs that I explained, such as environmental disasters and things like that. Um, But there are tools out there that look at these kind of environmental things or taking a comprehensive case history as well can sort of sometimes reveal experiences like that. But yes, most people do rely on that sort of 10-point ACEs scale and there's an online um, scale that you can do as well if you Google ACEs test. Mm. Is there anything that you could say to speech pathologists who are feeling a bit nervous about asking about ACEs? Is there you know, is there any particular training that you think is required or, or anything for speeches to keep in mind when, um, when thinking about asking about these or, you know, incorporating the questions into a case history, for instance? Yeah, absolutely, Laura. I think it's a really good question and it's a really sensitive topic. And so we know that when we ask about topics like this, well, first of all, it's difficult to ask about them uh, because, you know, they are very, very sensitive topics. And second of all, we know that when we do ask about them, we may not always get the truth because there's a lot of fear that comes with being vulnerable and honest about these issues. So if you say that you're experiencing domestic violence or if there's substance abuse in your home or that you're, you know, having severe mental illness, there's always a fear from parents that their children might be taken away or that they might be viewed poorly and things like that. So it's a very hard thing for parents to answer honestly about. And Mm -hmm. to my experience, I don't think that a checklist is always the best way to go about it. I believe that it comes from building that relationship with our clients and being able to have conversations with them reaching that point in our relationships where they feel safe enough to talk about these vulnerable things. It might even be a matter of the speech pathologist sharing information about how trauma can impact child development and then giving that opening for family to say, well, actually, this little one has been through this, this or this, you know, so giving that opening but forming that relationship first so that it's quite safe. There are some that you can embed in a case history or that you might be able to sort of prompt about in a case history. But again, it can be very, very sensitive to ask these questions sort of in a a tick and flick kind of way. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that. And I think I really love your point about the relationship and how it all starts with that, doesn't it? Um, And and you can often get a sense of of what you're going to be able to talk about or, or address and, and what topics might be a no-go zone and, and which ones you have a little bit of wiggle room with. Uh, and I guess just, you know, emphasising the importance of well of, um, as well of speech pathologists making sure they have access to, to proper supervision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, also, I guess, safeguards in place as well for if there are disclosures, um, you know, what what the family can do or what the speech pathologist can do to make sure that, you know, the the family's safe, you know, and and know what's within scope as well. I think that can be a bit tricky. Absolutely. And I guess the the scope of practice, the lines get a little blurry when it comes to some of these issues because um, 
you know, sometimes they can be seen as the scope of a psychologist or a social worker, but they do have an impact on language as well. So it is within our scope. So I think you're right. And of course, that's the benefit of working in a multidisciplinary team. But I also know that a lot of speech pathologists now work in private practice or are, you know, sole practitioners and they don't always have that team around them. So it is really important, as you say, to have those safeguards in place or that supervision in place so that you have somewhere to go if you're feeling a little bit concerned or you're not sure what the next steps might be. Or maybe even if you're impacted by what the family's telling you it can you know you've sort of got that vicarious trauma risk don't you and the oh, and it's really quite emotional listening to some of the stories yeah, yeah. thank you so um tell us about the cdc ace study yeah so this was the very first study that really followed kids longitudinally looking at the impact of aces um on children's long-term outcome outcomes and I guess what they expected to see was that if children had poor upbringings or negative environments, you know, abuse and neglect, that they'd have poor mental health. I guess that was kind of the hypothesis. But what they found was so far beyond what they could have anticipated in terms of the impact of um, ACEs upon children's long-term development. They found that children um, who had uh, ACEs were actually quite common. So 40% of the original sample had one or more ACE, um, sorry, two or more ACEs, and 12.5% of them actually had four or more ACEs. So they found that adverse childhood experiences are actually quite common and that the impact of them are so much uh, greater than just thinking about their mental health impacts. They found that there was impacts um for physical health as well. So they were more likely to have um, heart conditions, cancer, um, COPD, um, as well as what we would expect from the more mental health sides of things, so substance abuse, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, but even increased risk of stroke and Alzheimer's disease as well. So far more... um, far-reaching than we would have expected, I guess, in that original hypothesis. And what I wanted to look at in my research was, you know, well, if it's this far-reaching, what about language? Is that also impacted? And a few other um, speech pathology researchers had looked at this. So Carol Westby, who's a wonderful researcher from the US, had sort of looked at this and I saw a fabulous presentation from her um, at the IELP conference, which is the International Speech Pathology um, Association conference in Taiwan in 2019, not long before we went into lockdown. And she really sparked a sort of passion for me in this area because I realised that so much of what she was saying had implications for so many of the children that we treat. Um, You know, this trauma is quite common in early childhood or in, in childhood in general. And to think of the far-reaching implications of this is something that we really need to be considering in speech pathology, not just in health and medicine. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. So how do ACEs impact language development and learning? Yeah, so basically what happens with ACEs, the reason that they have these far-reaching implications is because they set off our fight or flight response. 
and it's totally normal for our fight or flight re- response to be set off every now and then. That's what it's there for. It keeps us safe. It protects us. But when children are living um, with significant ACEs, um, they're experiencing their fight or flight response being set off all the time. So they're living in a state of what we call toxic stress. And what this does is it releases excessive cortisol in the brain. And there are four main impacts of excessive cortisol on the brain. The first is a suppressed immune system. So that's where we get that impact on illnesses. We have an increased amygdala size. So that's um, the area of the brain controlling our fight or flight response. So that response always with fear or anger. It also reduces our hippocampus size, which is the area responsible for memory. So children with trauma often have difficulties with narratives. Um, And I guess that relates back to that old saying of when something bad happens to you, your brain kind of blocks it out. Um, And so it does really affect your memory, these early childhood traumas. And it also um, leads to a reduced size of the orbital frontal cortex, which is where responsible for emotional understanding and regulation. And so that translates um, into a lot of different things that can impact upon language. Um, So it can impact upon social communication as well as language development. And so there have been a couple of studies looking specifically into how it might impact language development. And one of them was a meta-analysis by Sylvester et al. in 2016. Uh, and they found that the language skills of children who have experienced abuse and or neglect are delayed when compared to children who have not. And the effects were seen across receptive, expressive and pragmatic language. Um, and that the younger the age of the trauma, the more Uh, the greater the impact seemed to be and that there was no real significant difference depending on what type of maltreatment. So whether it was abuse or neglect, the impact seemed to still be the same on children's language. So there was a real impact there um, for children's language, but also a huge impact on their social communication. And so you think about what I was mentioning before, issues with regulation of fear and anger, um, issues with emotional regulation, is going to um, present like some other conditions that we work with. So there's a lot of overlap between the presentation of trauma and the presentation of ADHD and ASD and um, neurodiversity um, conditions such as those. So it's very important to consider trauma when we're thinking about um, making differential diagnoses of things like ADHD and ASD and what role it might play. And it can be very, very difficult to separate those things out because people who experience autism, for example, may experience trauma as a result of the autism or they may experience trauma as well as having autism. So they may be from... um, an abusive family as well as having autism or they might be bullied as a result of having autism. So it could be a chicken or an egg kind of situation. But the way that those behaviours present can be quite similar to each other. Um, So it's important to consider that when we're trying to figure out what's going on with individual kids. Mm, Great. Thank you. So we might have touched on this already, but tell us... um, a few more of your thoughts around how speech pathologists can sensitively screen for ACEs. 
Yeah. So as I was mentioning, it's all to do with relationship. And I think it's about clinical reasoning as well. So thinking about when it's important to know this. So when you're starting to see some of these um, behaviours perhaps arise that seem like they could be trauma-related or you're trying to figure out whether or not they're trauma-related or whether the child might um, be on the spectrum or have ADHD, it might be worth saying to the family, you know, oh, these things that this child's presenting with, they can happen when a child's experienced something traumatic in their younger years. You know, can you think of anything that would have happened to your child? So giving that opening when you see these behaviours. So you might not, you know, if someone comes in for a, a routine speech sound assessment, you might not jump straight off the bat and start doing an ACEs screening. It's probably more nuanced than that. You know, observing the child, if you're noting some of these behaviours that seem consistent with trauma, then sort of having those more sensitive and nuanced conversations at that point. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Lots to think about. Mm. So if um, ACEs are identified, what are the implications for assessment and diagnosis? So I guess we know that ACEs can be Uh, There's a lot of good news around ACEs. So one thing that I mentioned in my presentation at the SPA conference was about telomeres. And so I'm not sure if you recall me talking about, you know, this picture that um, so telomeres are um, sections of DNA at the very end of our chromosomes. And what scientists have found is that the longer a telomere is, the better health a person has all around, mental, physical health, and that the shorter a telomere is, um, which is created by toxic stress, the shortening of the telomere, then they have, you know, poorer health outcomes, poorer well-being outcomes. And what they have found through intervention studies, largely in the US, is that when families who are experiencing trauma and adverse childhood experiences are provided with um, family-centred interventions, so interventions that support both the parents and the children um, in terms of, you know, attachment relationship building, communication strategies, that it can have a really positive effect on childhood outcomes and actually cause that telomere length to regenerate. So there's a lot of positive research around um, being able to support children who have experienced ACEs to have positive lifelong outcomes with the right intervention. And so what it might mean from a speech pathology situation is, yes, we can support them with their language goals, we can support them with their social communication goals, but it also might be a matter of referring families or supporting families to find family-based interventions that can support them um, in their situation to strengthen that entire family unit as well. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And so I guess, you know, it's important for speech pathologists to be aware of other professionals that might be involved with the family so that you can join forces, you know, if it's sort of appropriate and make sure that the family's getting the support that they need. Yeah, and if you're going through NDIS, which a lot of our clients do when there are complex needs, there are lines of funding available for that family-based support and intervention. So becoming familiar with... um, getting support from those different avenues or advocating for support for those different avenues so that families can see a psychologist or whoever it might be that can provide that intervention can be really helpful for the family. 
So how can ACEs impact our speech pathology intervention? Mm. So how kids might engage in therapy, for instance. Yeah, so you might be seeing some of these things that we would commonly see in kids uh, with uh, ADHD. So they might find it difficult to concentrate. Um, They might find it difficult to build relationships because they may have difficulties with trust from having been through challenging situations in the past. Um, They might be overactive um, or have that heightened startle response. They might be quite um, vulnerable to intervention approaches that are challenging. So, you know, if we're taking complexity approaches to intervention, that might be a really challenging thing for kids from a trauma background. It might be important for them to experience success very early in intervention so that they start to build a positive association with their therapist and with coming to speech therapy um, so that they start to feel confident and that it's a safe and trustworthy environment. So, um there's a lot of things that we can do similar to what we would do to support um, our neurodiverse clients um, that can really help kids from trauma backgrounds to um, be successful in their intervention. Mm. So you sort of mentioned the importance of sort of family interventions. Um, What are some other ways um, we can prevent or reverse the damaging effects of toxic stress and thus improve the lives of vulnerable children and what is the role of speech pathology in this? So um, I think, well, first of all, removing those sources of toxic stress is the most important thing. Now, that can be out of our power, of course, um, but it's important for us to make sure that we're having conversations. If we're at the point of that relationship with our clients, that we can make them feel safe and be connecting them in with other services that might be able to support that. So the child is not really going to be able to progress um, or recover from toxic stress if they're still in a state of toxic stress. So that's first and foremost, I guess. Um, It's definitely beyond the scope of our practice to be, you know, (laughs) removing families from situations such as that. But if we can be connecting with services or just letting families know that, you know, we're a safe place to seek advice um, for where they might get help is um, a good place to start. The other um, ways is just about being really realistic in what we're asking families to do. So if you know that families have a complex background, um, sending things like expecting homework and things to be done is probably not achievable. And so what I have done in my experience is often linked up with schools and um, a lot of schools that I've worked with, particularly if there's a lot of vulnerable children there, they might have extra funding for teachers' aids and things like that. So often they've been able to implement the daily speech therapy practice, um, whether it be for literacy or language or whatever it is, because the families aren't in a position where they're able to provide that at the moment. So trying to think outside the box a little bit, looking at who the key caregivers are in the child's life that could provide that support because it may not always be their parents. It may be another key individual. But research shows that having a really strong, um, supportive, dependable relationship with a key adult in a child's life can make all the difference for these kids in building their strength and resilience and recovering from trauma. Mm. 
that's all amazing information, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, and it's given us a lot to, to think about in our practice. Are there any particular um, resources or um you know, that speech pathologists could access um, to find more information about this mm-hmm. that you'd recommend? Absolutely. One source of information that I absolutely love is the Harvard Brain Architectures Lab. So they have a website if you just Google Harvard Brain Architectures Lab, but they also have a podcast and they just have the most fabulous guests on their podcast talking all about this. It really focuses on... Um, how children's brains are built and how children's brains can be um, both impacted by toxic stress but also healed um, and repaired after the experience of toxic stress. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, There's also a great TED talk by Nadine Burke-Harris on ACEs, which I would very much recommend. Um, And, yeah, I also recommend the work of Carol Westby, who I mentioned earlier, um, who's a great guru in this area for speech pathologists. Mm. And is there anything that we haven't talked about today, Sarah, that you would like to add or any take-home messages or, you know, extra information that you'd like to share? Um, I guess my biggest take-home message is, that although it seems like it's very bad news when it comes to ACEs, that there really is um, hope and there's really opportunities for families and children to rebuild their lives and have, um, you know, strong, establish strong trajectories for the future. But it really does take um, a societal effort. You know, these things don't just happen in a vacuum, um, complex family situations are part of society, a very large part of our society. And so we need support from education, from healthcare, from mental health services, from government aid, and all these supports to be able to enable families to get back on the right track, to be in safe environments and give kids the best start to life. Mm. Thank you. So speech pathologists have a really important role in this process. Thank you, Sarah, for coming and joining us today. Um, given us a lot of a lot to think about, and um, and we really uh, really appreciate um, you sharing your experience and wisdom with us. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another Speak Up episode. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to Sarah and Laura. Hi, it's Trish from the Ethics Team with Nadia and Kelly, and we're here to promote a new resource for all Speech Pathology Australia members. The Speech Pathology Australia Ethics Board and National Office Ethics Team are really excited to announce the launch of the updated ethics education modules. These will replace the current modules from the 19th of October 2022, and we chose that day as it's Global Ethics Day. The updated ethics education modules provide an opportunity to stretch ourselves, explore content relevant to everyday decision making and advance our skills and confidence in ethical decision making, which is something that we do every day. So it will act as a refresher of education and it's been updated to align with the 2020 Code of Ethics.
These modules contain contemporary ethical issues and detail about how to apply the code of ethics in a proactive manner to ensure that we are enhancing our clinical connectivity and upholding professional values. We have designed these modules to be meaningful to a speech pathologist who's at any point in their career, whether they're fresh to our profession or whether they've been practicing for decades. Ethics underpins our every decision-making process. And so these, these modules will be valuable to ensure that you're feeling across all of that. And they'll also enable you to reflect upon your professional values and your goals, which is really important for us as professionals and also as individuals. And since reflective practice is a foundation of our profession, taking time to review the how and why of our decisions helps us grow as professionals. So please look out for the modules which will be available on the Learning Hub on the website and links will be provided in the Speak Out magazines and on the Member Hub. We hope you enjoy them. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.